starting with verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in doing so you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Father, we just ask again this evening uh, for the help, for the ministry of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for each and every person represented here tonight. Lord, we know that none of us are here by accident. Before the foundations of the world, Lord, you ordained that we would hear your word. And Lord, that we would not only hear it, uh, but Lord, we would receive it with gladness. And Lord, that we would apply it in our lives. We ask that you would help us, refresh us, uh, restore us tonight, Lord. Uh, if things are off track in regards to anything that we will look at tonight, Lord, that we will, uh, by your grace and by, with your help, uh, Lord, set things right and walk in the power of the Holy Spirit and love and of a sound mind. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Again, uh, we're picking up from where we left off last week. This is a part two, if you're taking note, a spirit of love, part two. We covered our first bullet point last week being loving, knowing that um, love is the umbrella of everything that is outlined here by the Apostle Paul, that uh, if we don't have a genuine love that comes from the Father, it's going to be impossible to walk in these specific commands and instructions, uh, because these are hard things to do. Um, it's not the natural tendency of our flesh to live so self-sacrificing in the manner that, uh, that the Apostle Paul lays out for us. But we'll pick up, uh, we, we covered verses 9 and 10 and really kind of starting with loving and we'll, start, uh, we'll, we'll jump back in with serving, starting in verse 11, not lagging in diligent, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. There's a story about a, uh, from a Brenda Goodine, and she shares a story about her friend who decided to talk to her bright four-year-old son, Benji, about receiving Christ. Benji, she asked quietly, would you like to have Jesus in your heart? Benji thought for a few minutes and then rolling his blue eyes answered, no, I don't think I want the responsibility. Benji realized what many Christians still have not figured out. Salvation is a free gift, but it comes with some strings attached. Service is not an option for a follower of Christ. It is a natural outgrowth of our relationship with Christ. Are you serving the Lord? And so even though we, we don't work to be saved, uh, Jesus has already told us, uh, come and follow me. There's going to be effort in following him, isn't there? Uh, there's no effort in the actual work of redemption. That's done by the Lord. But uh, but the young man seemed to understand that uh, it was going to be uh, it was going to be hard uh, that it wasn't going to be easy just to uh, receive salvation, but then uh, just sit on the sidelines. That's not going to happen. God's not going to allow that. He's going to call us into serving. Back in verse ten, to be kindly affectionate to one another. This brotherly love compels us now to serve one another. I mean, what kind of parent? that really loves their kids doesn't serve them. Think about it. What kind of parent says, I want a child, but when the child is born, I'm never going to touch the child, help the child, do anything. They're on their own. Brand new infant. 
No, automatically. Uh, we know that having a child, well, not everybody knows this. We know we've got a lot of problems in this country where not everybody understands this. But the believer and even non-believers that just understand some level of responsibility know that if I have a child, I now have a responsibility to do some serving. I'm going to have diapers. I'm going to have to make formula. I'm going to have to go doctor visits. I'm going to have to do all of these things, and they're going to be difficult. But what do we always say as parents? It is worth it. That's what we tell other people that don't have kids. Well, maybe you stop telling people that now. But you used to tell people that, right? You say, it's going to be worth it. And when we, join, when we come into the body of Christ, yes, Jesus says, now I have work for you to do. I need you to go out in the fields and do the following. But he tells us it's going to be worth it. Do you believe that? That doing these things, it's serving our brothers and sisters and serving the lost. Paul said he became all things to all men that he might by some means win some. Uh, is it worth it to give our lives and service to the Lord to the body of Christ, and to the outside lost and dying world. I believe it is worth it. And if I knew nothing but just Jesus said it's worth it, that's enough for me. How about you? It's going to be worth it. That one day when you hear, well done, good and faithful sluggard? Well done, good and faithful do nothing? Well done, good and faithful servant. Servant. Servants serve. I don't know if anyone here ever served as a servant. I doubt anyone here did. Some of you may have been in a service industry. Uh, you know, I used to wait tables and do all that stuff. Um, uh, if I waited tables but actually wouldn't go wait on the table, I wouldn't have a job, right? So it, by definition, the servant is going to do these things. So he starts in verse 11, uh, just building on the fact that love compels us to do. Compels us to do. Not just to do stuff for doing stuff, but to do stuff that edifies and strengthens the overall body of Christ and ministers to people. You have the Good Samaritan, that's doing something for someone who is laying there in a really bad state. That's the compassionate heart of the believer. But then you also have the doing and serving the body of Christ, and that is strengthening and building up. Uh, Just like in your own family, you could have one child that's sick, needs compassionate care, but the other one needs encouragement that, yes, you can, you can learn this math problem. You really can. I know it seems you can't, but you can. And here's, Let me help you through it. So not lagging in diligence is where we want to start off with, uh, but he goes on to enumerate several things here, fervent in the Spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope. I kind of took uh, all of these things and I tried to combine them into one sentence. Let, let me try this on you, see what it sounds like to you. Diligently, fervently, with rejoicing and patience, blessing, serving, distributing uh, to others in the name of the Lord through constant prayer with humility and hospitality. That's another way of saying everything there. I'll read that one last time to you. Diligently, fervently, with rejoicing, in patience, blessing, serving, distributing to others in the name of the Lord through constant prayer with humility and hospitality. Wow. Paul. I don't do one of those things, much less the whole list. That's what most people, when they hear it, they're like, that sounds daunting. That's Florence Nightingale mixed together with, you know, every other godly person you could think of all rolled into one. And yet we're called to do these things and to live according uh, to this manner. Um, In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, no, I skipped to that, I'll come back to that. Here's the thing. It starts off with love. And then we have these important characteristics that should be present in the body of Christ and growing in us individually. But it starts with uh, love, and uh, then that love will compel us to begin to work under the Lord. Think about this first one of not lagging in diligence. If we stop loving, we'll stop working. You won't serve people that you don't love. But 
if you, and it all starts with that vertical relationship, if you love Jesus, this is the plumb line that always keeps us, if you love and serve him, then you're always okay when he redirects you back to other people. Because you're serving your master. Jesus is the master. He is all of our boss. I joke with people, I used, you guys know I used to be in the, the business world, and when I was at Microsoft, I, I worked for, at the top, when I first hired there, Bill Gates was still uh, the, the CEO of the company, and so I said, I used to work for the richest man in the world, now I work for God. And I can tell you who I'd rather have as my boss. But God will always redirect me to the things that matter to him, and what matters to him is people. While we're still on this earth, we're always going to be serving people, not being, not lagging in diligence. Um, now, this could apply. This applies to many things. We have to be diligent to pray. We have to be diligent in studying the Word. We have to have, make time for the Lord. But for the most part, what's being spoken of here is really uh, those of us that really work under the Lord, serving the needs of one another, and that takes all different shapes and sizes and different forms. But it's important that we have a people that understand that the Lord expects us to work. In 2 Thessalonians 3.11, Paul writes, For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. In 1 Timothy 1.6, in 1 Timothy 5.13, and in Titus 1.10, and all three of those passages where Paul writes the church, he equates idleness with the automatic, of, uh, what idleness seems to produce, he says every time, produces gossip and insubordination. Isn't that interesting? You ever always heard when you were growing up, idle hands are the devil's workshop? Now that's not a verse. A lot of unsaved people would probably think that it is. It's not a verse. But it is true. Idle hands really are the devil's workshop. Idle hands aren't good for anybody. Uh, anytime you see teenagers idle, parents, you know good things will not usually follow, right? But that's not just teenagers. It's adults. It's young women. It's middle-aged men. It's all kinds of... that. When we get saved, we cannot sit on the sidelines because if we do... What did Jesus write to that first church in Ephesus? Your love has grown cold. When you're not working under the Lord, you are walking, drifting, falling away from the Lord. But when you jump in and say, Lord, I'm going to work and serve others, it keeps your love for them strong too. Not only your love for the Lord, which is your first important relationship, but also for others. Now he goes on to say here, fervent in spirit. Fervent in spirit. What does that mean? Well, this word fervent, uh, the Greek word is best described as boiling. Boiling. Is your, and 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 he actually has it tied together, fervent in spirit serving the Lord. Is your service of the Lord boiling hot or not? Yes, that rhymes. Is it boiling hot? Jesus said, I would that you were hot or cold. I could wish that you were one or the other, but that you're lukewarm, I'll do what? Vomit you out of my mouth. Now that was Jesus speaking. Jesus took Paul's and one-upped it and said, not only do I want you to be fervent in spirit, if you're not fervent in spirit, but just kind of lukewarm, tepid, that that makes me want to vomit, and I, in fact, will unless you get things right. But were to be a boiling hot passion, is it a, do you have a passion for serving the Lord? Do I have a passion for serving the Lord? Do we collectively, individually? Remember that all the passages here speak to us as individuals, but also as a group. Because he wants Calvary Chapel of Richmond to be boiling and have a passion for serving the Lord, a passion for serving other people, even people, as we'll get to, that don't like us. 
We still have a passion to love and like them. We'll get to that uh, in just a second. But we would have a passion, a fervency. Um, We're willing to work hard, but we also are working hard. Again, we're not just working hard for working hard. There's lots of people in the world that work hard. Do they love the Lord? No. You've heard of the proverbial workaholic. God says, I want you to work, but the, the engine room of your work is a fervency for me, serving me, that you love me, that you have a boiling, hot, fervent love for me. He goes on, rejoicing in hope, verse 12, rejoicing in hope. Now, what does that mean? Well, this is actually centering us back to where we're going to be when everything will be given to us by the Lord for our efforts. Our hope is where? It's in heaven. We have the hope of heaven. No matter how bad your physical ailments may be here tonight, no matter how bad your bank account looks, no matter how bad the week has been, no matter how bad somebody has been to you this week or today or will be tomorrow and you're not even aware of it yet, all the other things that take place, no matter how difficult thing uh, Jesus would say, you still have the hope of being in heaven eternally with me. Now, when you can rest on that, it'll put everything else in perspective. Now, this doesn't come easy. You can't rest on that thought for one second and be okay. Sometimes you've got to wrestle with this for weeks and days. My hope is the Lord. My hope is the Lord. My hope is heaven. I have the hope of being with you forever in heaven, Lord. And these are the things that we dwell on. We have to go back to them. You have to dwell on these things. Our hope, that's what he's saying. We, we don't rejoice. We don't rejoice in doing a great job because that's short-lived. We don't rejoice in getting it right. We don't rejoice in results. By the way, results won't always look good from a human perspective. You understand that, right? Noah could have no great cheer about his results. Lord, I've been preaching for 100 years. Got my three sons, got their wives, and nobody else. The most unsuccessful evangelist in the Bible. Then you've got a guy like Jonah who doesn't even want to preach to the Ninevites and everyone gets saved. But Noah is revered by the Lord as a man of great faith. How is it that Jonah, everyone in Nineveh gets saved and he doesn't even want to preach to them? Noah wants to preach to everyone and no one gets saved. Man would look at results. God says, Your hope is not your results. Your hope is not what other people see in your life. Your hope is heaven. And that's what Paul is saying. He said, you've got to rejoice in real hope. Everything else is kind of temporal. Things will go well. Things won't go well. Things will look good. Things won't look good. But he says, "Still, still keep looking to heaven. Still keep looking to heaven. Paul was always thinking about I'll soon be home with Jesus. I love what K.P. Hannon always says, just a few more days. Just a few more days and I'll be home. Chuck's there now, you know, pressing through. This is the hope he's talking about. Not rejoicing in results, not rejoicing in your abilities and my abilities or lack thereof, but rejoicing in the hope of heaven. Next one, patient tribulation. Patient tribulation. Leon Morris Uh, wrote many years ago, he says, of this patience, he says, this does not denote, uh, this this patience through tribulation, he says, this does not denote a passive putting up with things, but an active steadfast endurance. Tribulation denotes not some minor pinprick, but some deep and serious trouble. In your life and my life, we will endure deep and serious trouble. Sometimes you're bearing other people's deep and serious trouble. Um, that's happening in this church right now. I mean, I think of our sister, what she's going through in stage four cancer. Things in your own life, things in your family, deep and serious trouble will come. They're not some minor pinprick. 
but we remain patient through them. Why? Well, because we have faith that God has not allowed anything that he won't also bring us through or give us the strength to bear it, no matter what it is. And I look out here, I, I'm aware of some of your uh, struggles and trials, and some of them I'm not. Some of them only you and the, the Lord know. But at the same time, I do know that he never gives us more than we can bear, and all things work together for the good to them that love him or the called according to his purpose, true or not true. And so we say, yes, Lord, you certainly could have removed this by now. You could have healed this by now. You could have solved this by now. You could have changed the circumstances by now, but you haven't. So let me be patient and learn. There's a lot more that God's teaching us than we're ever really aware of. I look back and sometimes God was teaching me when I didn't know he was teaching me. It's like I wake up a couple of weeks or sometimes a couple of years later and I realize God taught me something. I was like, I didn't know I learned it. It's like you ever just pick up a, a, a habit, a, bad habits, are, but a good habit from a parent, like Tom was talking about how you know, his son organized the cabinet the way his parents did. I don't even think he probably even recognized it, right? He just kind of did it. This is at our marriage retreat over the weekend. But you can pick up things from the Lord as we just patiently wait. But love and patient endurance um, through trials and difficulties. Uh, you know, I mentioned you know, having children earlier. Yeah, you know, I've had those times. I'm sure you have. When our kids get sick, I mean the, the throw-up sick, it's always after we're in bed. I don't know if there's some reason for this. There probably is some medical reason for this. And it's usually right after I've gotten super comfortable or just fell into a deep sleep. And then, you know, we, my wife and I you know, both think someone is like robbing the bed or something when, you know, you're like, and there's, it's just a mess. Like you're you're up, we've got Clorox and hot water and baths are running, all this stuff. And you're doing all this stuff in the middle of the night, but you have a patient enduring of it, don't you? Because you realize this must be done. You don't say, I'm not dealing with this, I'm just going back to bed. <laughs> I'm just not, I'm not even going to worry about it, sleep that way, Call the doctor yourself. Do whatever. I'm four. You know, uh, <laughs> you, patiently, you patiently endure. You begin to wash. You wake yourself up. You start praying, Lord, what do I do? Because I don't even know where to start with this one. You know, I've had a couple like that. Lord, what do I do? You begin to do these things and you patiently endure. And after a while, you know, when, if you're saved, you really do begin to... God starts to, I've had Lord teaching me spiritual lessons right there on the spot. I'll start to think of verses. I'll start to think of what this is actually walking out of specific scripture. And it's minor in the scheme of things, really. Although at the moment we think it's World War III or something. But the same thing happens in the larger body, happens in the church. Things go wrong, there's obstacles. There's difficulties, there's death, there's division, there's all kinds of things that happen. And you still have to patiently wait through them with the Lord. That patience is not patience on your own, it's the patience of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God shows you what, how to handle these situations because you're like, Lord, it looks like throw up everywhere in a sense. Lord, what do I do? He's like, you start over here. And then over here, little by little, I'll work you through. And then you just kind of say, look back and you're, wow, Lord, it worked. Listening to you, just patiently abiding. Those of you that are in then trials and tribulations, uh, you just have to patiently say, Lord, I'll continue steadfastly in prayer. Sometimes praying the same prayer many, 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 many times, right? Same prayer. Sometimes God will have you change the prayer. It'll still be steadfast, and he wants us to... The, the difference between us and, and the world is uh, the world doesn't pray about these things. They just look for someone to solve it. And many things can't be solved by anybody else. Amen? People have tried. The Betty Ford Clinic 
has tried many times with Hollywood and has failed time and time and time and time again, right? Alcoholics Anonymous has tried with a lot of people and failed with many people. Divorce, you know, counselors have tried many times, failed with many people. All these other things that, that the world would try, financial, but at the end of the day, Jesus says, come to me, you, those who are weary and heavy laden. Why don't you bring the burdens and the cares to me? Casting all your care upon him, for he cares. And so we patiently wait through these things, and some of them we know aren't because of, some of them aren't because of sin. You can search your heart and say, Lord, I'm, that, I'm right with you. Other times, he will point out some sin. Sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. And that's where in prayer the Lord will say, this is of your own doing. Stop that. Other times he says, this is not anything to do with sin. This is me just allowing you to go through a test like Job. Job was actually walking righteously and a whole, it's like everything fell down on him. And he had to patiently wait. And everyone else says, you should just curse God and die. He said, no, I'm going to patiently wait on the Lord. And he did. Prayer is our refuge, isn't it? When we continue in steadfast, it's our refuge. It's our strength. It's also our tool. Again, maybe the trial is not yours. Maybe it's somebody else's. It's also our tool and fighting the enemy and rescuing our brothers and sisters. We, we have to pray for people that are in the family of God, that, that their faith is beginning to get weak. They are weary. They are t- can be even physically and spiritually. We go to battle for them, continuing patiently on their behalf, interceding is what that is called. Verse 13, he goes into distributing to the needs of the saints. Distributing to the needs of the saints. Very important that we be giving people not only do we give to the ministry of the Lord, but we also, you know, see specific needs, and we don't really do this. Somebody else meet it. If the Lord shows you a specific need that you actually can meet, God wants you to step in. Some of them we can't. There's needs we can't meet, but God will show you which ones you can, and rather than just uh, hope that somebody else does it, that was the problem with uh, on there on the Samaritan Road. Everybody else passed by and said, somebody else will take care of this guy. But not the Samaritan, right? He actually said, I'll be the one. I'll be the one to get down and bind up the wounds and take care of these things. But distributing here, he specifically says distributing to the needs of the saints, We know here that Paul is speaking of the fact that in the body of Christ, we're really to be a family. Now, the body of Christ does not act like a a family, not in the way that God wants the body of Christ to act like a family. I was listening to to an interview today uh, with um, Francis Chan. I don't know if anyone caught it, but I caught it. I was riding back from running an errand. I was listening to this interview with Francis Chan, and, and, and the guy closing the interview said, Francis... What keeps you up at night? And he said, the church. He said, what, what specifically? He says, the division, the arrogance, the stepping on each other. Uh, he said, it's it just, Jesus said, I, I quote this verse all the time. He said, Jesus said, by this will all men know that you're truly my disciple, that you love one another. That brothers and sisters would be brotherly, affectionate, kind to one another, building each other up, strengthening each other. And he, and he knows, and any pastor that's seen it, you know, it's been such a blessing for me just recently, uh, you know, meeting with 20-some other pastors to, to work together for the My Hope America, because we're not the only church in the city doing that. Uh, there's others that are doing it too. Uh, and I've got to meet with those other pastors. And another group that we met with recently on uh, the Bless Richmond later in November. And, and uh, you know, to have... Uh, a brother like Tom do our marriage retreat over the weekend, and to have uh, see me and her pu- uh, husband Peter, who used the building here for those single moms, which they'll be meeting this when uh, this coming Monday for the Fish and Loaves ministry, uh, to meet these single moms who are most of them unsaved, and that church to use our building because they don't have a building, and to really be locking arms with Gospel for Asia and Samaritan's Purse and you know, all of these things, 
And this, this, this makes the Lord smile, doesn't it? When the body of Christ meets the needs of others in the body of Christ, distributing what we have with one another, loving and caring for one another. This is what the Lord uh, loves to see. Satan hates it, by the way. Satan hates it when the saints are really loving and serving and helping one another. He can't stand it. He would much rather uh, us be giving each other the cold shoulder or, hey, that's not my business, and, hey, take care of yourself. But no, we would distribute and see the needs and meet these needs, distributing to the needs of the saints, even in this body that we would uh, recognize where we can help one another. Sometimes the need uh, is service-oriented. Sometimes it is something tangible. You know, we've got some of the ladies that are making meals for needs in this body. We've got some that are doing some cleaning uh, for some needs in this body. I mean, for people that have a genuine need. And other times, you might see a need where someone had, you know, maybe they lost their job and there's something you can do to just bless them anonymously. All of these things are so important. Missionaries, uh, these, this is important as well, that we would be blessing them. He goes on to say, given to hospitality. Now, um, this was interesting. I didn't know as, as I was studying for this. The ancient Greek word for hospitality here literally is translated a love for strangers. A love for strangers. Now, we often equate hospitality uh, as inside the body, and that certainly does apply. And it certainly doesn't mean uh, that, uh, that we don't show hospitality to each other. We know that we do because the previous uh, words tell us that, distributing to the needs of the saints. So those are, generally speaking, uh, not strangers, although some saints, um, when we have s- saints that come through uh, in our house, we have a guest room that we love to have missionaries and people from out of town that we've never met before stay at our house. We love to bless them. It's something we really enjoy doing, uh, and hopefully you do as well. But also the understanding that we look for people that we can really show hospitality to that we don't know, and oftentimes this can be people outside the church. I, I want to read a passage to you that you've probably read before, uh, and maybe uh, it's one that we don't think of a lot, uh, but it's certainly one that Jesus uh, gives us a rather descriptive understanding of how we should think about blessing others. Listen to what he says in Luke chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, and Jesus said, when you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, and you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Jesus, do you mean that? Do you mean that you that your your highest priority is to really to bless people who can't bless us back? Yeah. That's the highest level. Now this does not Jesus is not saying that you know we know the we never look at scripture without understanding it in the context of all of scripture. We know enough about other scripture that even here it tells us to distribute among the needs of the saints. Some saints certainly could pay you back. But what Jesus is saying is that we should have an eye. Our greatest, our greatest, when we're looking at uh, opportunities, we always should be looking for the greatest needs. That Jesus, when he would walk in a room, he would find the person who had the greatest need, and that is who he would pour the most of his energy into. Start to read the Gospels on your own and watch and see if you don't see it. Jesus gravitates to the people with the greatest needs, the greatest needs. And so we as the body of Christ, we have the opportunity when it comes to hospitality to look for people with great need. And when we reach out to them and really serve them, it opens up doors for the gospel, doesn't it? It opens up doors for them to say, wow, your God really does love and care for me. And I think this is something that we all can grow on tremendously. Amen? 
I think this is, a, this is an, an area of tremendous growth for the body of Christ in America. I don't think that the default position of the church is to look for people with the greatest need. Matter of fact, we go through hoops in churches across this country to coddle every need of people who don't even have great need, don't we? You want a carnival? We'll make you a carnival. But the person down the street that you could have invited into your house, oh, I don't have time for that. But why don't we have, why don't we have this program and this program and this? And God says, that's not, even, that's not even my heart. My heart is to find those with the lowest possible uh, or those that are in such bad condition and really bless and serve them. He says in... Um, he says in 1 John 3.18, my little children, let us not love, or John writes in 1 John 3.18, my little children, let us not love in word or tongue, but in deed, that we have the action behind it, that we truly do love. I love that Jesus also says in Matthew 25.40, assuredly I say to you, and as much as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. When you and I really take the time to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, especially the ones that can't afford what you can afford. They can't go where you can go. They can't do, they don't have the health that you have. They don't have this, they don't have that. And you, you decide to, to do something on their behalf and just love them self, selflessly, sacrificing. Jesus smiles and reaches down and puts wind behind your sails because now you're doing the things that matter to him. You're looking for the least of the the least of these, my brethren. Now he's talking about our other brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the people that earnestly pray for the persecuted church. They earnestly pray, uh, earnestly help and serve those that have needs. And he goes on in verse 14: Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. We'll come back to that uh, in just a minute as we as we close with uh, the last section. Uh, but he says, don't, basically what he's saying here is, um, don't do as the world does. The world is good. If the world is cursed, they curse right back. If you're good to me, I'll be good to you. If you're bad to me, you got something coming, right? I don't get mad, I get even. That is the world's philosophy. But we also don't want to become jaded. Well, I don't really get even. I just become apathetic towards those people. Not good either, is it? Ambivalence is not the response. The, the response is to bless. To bless is not to be ambivalent. It's not to be uh, just kind of, uh, well, laissez-faire. I don't care about them anymore. They don't care about me. I don't care about them. No. It's actually proactive, blessing back. Persecution. We'll talk about that in just a second. But and then the last, uh, in verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Uh, this is to be considerate of where other people are at. Be considerate of where other people are at. You just got a promotion, so-and-so just lost their job. You don't run in and say, I, you've got the greatest news. You already know that. It, it. Have a little bit of care and concern. Care for them more. Your time to their time to rejoice with you will come, but always look first for the opportunity to really minister to people who have need. Then, when there's time of rejoicing, we should all rejoice together and rejoice with you. But we want to have you know even the world understands the word tact, right? Have some tact that we that we weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Um, when you really can rejoice with people that, when you really can rejoice with those who rejoice, you also don't suffer from envy. You're really able to rejoice with other people. You're happy for their success. You're happy for their growth. You're happy that God has blessed them. A lot of people are not happy when other people are blessed. They become miserable when other people are blessed. It bothers them greatly. Now, all of us have a little bit of that in us, don't we? Tell the truth. That's in everybody. It's, it's born in the sin nature. One of the 
little pictures I keep on my phone that I show my daughters from time to time. It's the one that is in, I took off the cover of Time magazine. Where it has the, the boy has two scoops of ice cream, big smile. The girl has one scoop of ice cream, big frown. His blessing is not blessing her. Because she's thinking, you got two scoops, I got one. I'm not liking this. Not being happy with the one scoop, can't really rejoice with your two scoops because I only have one scoop. And, and on the other side, we've got on the other side of things like envy or bad timing or lack of tact is, is really, it takes a maturity, it takes a depth to be able to mourn with someone. Many Christians have never mourned with another believer even once in their lifetime. They've never really mourned with another. They've never really just held someone and both sides shedding tears and really came into their grief period with them. Not with great words and platitudes and I can help fix this and I can cheer you up. That's not where you just sat there with them and allowed both of you to share the burden together. That takes a maturity and a depth. That, that's not something that, you know, a, a very shallow person can't do that. And God doesn't want us to be shallow, does he? He wants us to grow in the depth that we're not envious of others. We have an understanding of the situation, but we also can go deep and minister and mourn with those who mourn. And I think about, I mentioned the persecuted church, and, you know, we should be mourning with our persecuted brethren. You know, a Lutheran pastor who was severely tortured himself, protected the underground church, he had this statement. It just jumped off the page. I read it recently, and in uh, the Voice of the Martyrs devotional, Extreme Devotion. This is what this Lutheran pastor said. He said, a church that does not remember the persecuted, their persecuted brethren is no church at all. This is, and uh, this is actually quite indicting for the American church that uh, much of the American church does not remember its persecuted brethren. That's a statement by someone who was persecuted and living for... We should... We should mourn with our brothers and sisters. When I showed the video on November 3rd uh, from the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, I think it'll really kind of, it'll, it'll touch you and, and realize, wow, Lord, I, give, me, give me a soft heart for those that are truly suffering around the world. They can't meet here on a Wednesday like we're meeting. They're afraid of gunshots. They're afraid of, I mean, anything. They can't do any. We've, we've got all this opportunity. God says, I just told you to just sit with them. I didn't even tell you to necessarily be there, but pray with them, minister to them. Give me a few minutes, and we'll just try and wrap up this uh, last section, um, verses 16 through 21. I'll try and put a wrapper on this. Be of the same mind towards one another. He goes on to say, repay no one evil for evil. If it's possible, as much depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Verse 19, vengeance is mine, I will repay Verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, give him drink. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. Jesus taught this, uh, let's this last, we'll just wrap up with dying. Give me a couple of minutes and we'll be done here. Dying, what does that mean? I'm not talking about physically dying, although we will all physically die. Jesus said in John 12, 24, Most surely I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. When we get saved, Jesus, Jesus wants us to basically, remember when he said, take up your cross and follow me? We are willing to put to death through the help of his Holy Spirit and through the death of the cross. We're put to death our flesh because our flesh doesn't like to die for other people. Our flesh is always concerned about us, always. The most spiritual person you've ever met in your lifetime battles with the same flesh you do. They look in the mirror and want to please themselves. Now, they will try and die to that desire. The more mature they are in the Lord, they will try and die to that and say, Lord, I, I don't want to live for me. I want to live for you and for others. But the natural inclination is for ourselves. What's in it for me? If people take uh, and, and really appreciate me then I will really appreciate them. But he says, don't be, uh, don't set your, uh, don't set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Now the humble things 
are the things of Jesus Christ. Jesus was meek, lowly, humble. Hum- Jesus said, associate with my character. Jesus had every right to put the whole world under his foot. In fact, when he went back to heaven, he made earth his footstool. But he had the right to do it while he was here, but instead he chose not to. He allowed himself to be beaten, crucified, spit upon, slapped, mocked. You know, basically, uh, you know, two windbags like Herod and Pilate, right? He endured all of that because he decided, no, no, I will do the Father's will. I'll be humble and I'll turn the other cheek which is um, certainly something he wants us to do. But beyond turning the other cheek, he laid down his arms and his feet to be crucified. And he died physically that we would be able to die to our flesh spiritually. Make sense? That his physical death gives us a victory over our flesh and to be able to die and and be able to say, you know, I'm dead to the things that used to matter to me. Um, if you're living for this world, you're not going to let anybody get away with anything. Because you have something to prove in this world. You have to prove that you're better, smarter, you are right. You are right. You were Right. When everything else is done, you still want to prove you're right. We do, don't we? I don't need the money. I don't need anything else, but I need you to know I was right. As long as you can say I was right, I'm okay. Well, what if they won't say it? Oh, you can't sleep all night. Because they won't admit it. But you were right. But he says... Repay no one evil for evil. Yeah, if they're lying, that's evil. But you can't repay it back. He says, let it go. I, I, I don't remember, I say it often, the old, I can't remember if it was Jonathan Edwards or if, uh, I think it was him, but I, one of the old uh, pastors that said, doesn't matter what anybody says about you as long as it's not true. And it's really comforting a lot of times to remember that. Because Jesus knows what's true. Say, Lord, you know, when I was in the business world, there was times where I had done something and someone fires off an email taking credit for it before we had even gone live with something. You ever had that happen? Someone take credit for your work? You ever had someone stab you in the back? You ever someone someone lie about you? They gossip, they did this, they did that, and Jesus says, comes with the territory. They called me the son of Beelzebub when I'm the son of God, right? They said that I did my miracles through the power of Satan. They said that I was come to destroy Israel. They said that I was come to do this, that I wouldn't pay Caesar his taxes. All these lies, and Jesus said, none of them are true, and yet I still love them and will go to the cross and die for them. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard of good things. You know, when people malign you, or they will not be peaceful to you, when you start praying for them, you really can smile at them in a whole new way. Because you know that God has you safe. It says right here, if your enemy is hungry, feed him if he's thirsty. You're heaping coals of fire on his head. I've had, I've had a number of these situations in my life where I had someone that just did not like me. I know that's hard to believe. They just did not like me. They just didn't like me. Both times it was an unsafe coworker, and I know that my faith rubbed them wrong. I didn't try and rub them wrong. I tried to be as nice as I could, and they still did not like me, and they were looking for any opportunity to get one over. And I would, the more I prayed for them, God broke down walls eventually and ended up liking me. Not coming to Christ, but just saying, you know what? Love does break things down. And you and I certainly aren't in the place where we're in an Iranian prison we're having to pray for a guard that just beat us, right? The things that we complain about are rather uh, insignificant when really Jesus says, this works. You want, you want to know when things work. Jesus said, this works. You pray for them and let me take care of the rest. But God, I've got an 18-point outline to prove to them. You know, Jesus says, no, 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 you just pray for them. 
Let me turn things around. Let me come into their dreams. I pray, God, I pray, I do this. I say, Lord, speak to them in the middle of the night. Come to them in the middle of the night when you're the only one that can reach and, and show them your way, show them your truth. Pray and have good thoughts for those. And these aren't to say, you know, like, not like Jonah, and judge them in the middle of the night. Give them a heart attack at 4 a.m. or whatever. It's, no, Lord, turn them around. Show them that what they're doing is wrong. Bring them back to the cross or bring them to the cross for the first time because sometimes it's in the body of Christ when you've been wrong. Sometimes it's the world. Usually it's the world, but there's an awful lot in the body of Christ too. The body of Christ, uh, I remember one of my pastor friends, I won't say which uh, church, he does uh, every three years, he does a Q&A with the whole church. He spends three weeks fielding the Q&A and then he spends an entire uh, couple of Sundays. He doesn't do them live. He just takes them and then in response to them. And one new Christian, new Christian, new Christian, uh, new Christian college age kid says, why do Christians treat each other so lousy? Brand new Christian. Like, yeah, that's a good one. It's true. Here's how we have to handle it. You got to go back to Romans 12. We, it doesn't matter if it's in the outside world, if it's inside the body of Christ, whether they're your brother or your enemy, doing good heaps coals of fire on their head. Now, you know, again, we're not seeking to heap coals of fire, but we really want to follow verse 21, not overcoming evil with evil, but overcoming it with good. A.W. Tozer said, Jesus calls us to his rest, and his meekness is his method. The meek man cares not at all who is greater than he, for he has long ago decided that the esteem of this world is not worth the effort. If you're trying to find the esteem of other people and the esteem of this world, it ain't worth the effort. That's my good English right there. It's not worth the effort. Jesus said, standing before me and hearing, well done, good and faithful servant, will be worth the effort. Proverbs 18, 21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. You and I have, in the power of our tongue, we can instead bless or curse. Bless or curse. Pray for or not pray for at all. Lift up and encourage or tear down. And if we walk in love, and it goes back to brotherly love and brotherly affection and love for a lost and dying world and love for ultimate love for Jesus Christ, if we have that kind of love, it will compel us to die to ourselves. Amen? It will compel us to serve one another. Amen? And ultimately, we're dying to ourselves in obedience to Christ, and we're serving others in serving Christ. Let's close in prayer.